0: It's good to see you It's good to be seen again Psalm number 29 in the Word of God Well for those of you who have been following along with us in our study of the book of Psalms This psalm is very different from the rest of them and The distinguishing feature of the 29th Psalm compared to all the Psalms that we've studied, the 28 that preceded Psalm 29, is that there is no petition, there's no request, there's no lament, there's no asking God for anything, but from the very beginning to the very ending of Psalm 29, it is all just one long praise. So the title of the message this morning is Pure Praise. Some years ago, while I had the great privilege of attending Trinity Seminary, I met some professors that taught me how to study the Bible in light of archaeological discoveries. And one of the things that we know that's such a striking feature of the 29th Psalm is that it's written in 4-4 time. Uh, Most other Hebrew poetry is written in 3-3 time, but this one is written in 4-4 time, and the Canaanites, the enemies of the Jewish people, are the ones that wrote their poetry in the 4-4 time. There are many elements of this psalm that speak to the ancient Jewish culture, The ancient Hebrew people were surrounded by many other cultures that worshipped many different gods. The Jews were constantly interacting with these peoples in both positive and negative ways. Sometimes they interacted through peaceful trade and commerce, but many other times they interacted in violent political strife and even warfare. Perhaps the most unfortunate aspect of ancient Hebrew history Canaanitic relations was the temptation for the Jews to worship the gods of these other tribes. Consequently, the Ten Commandments begin with a strong prohibition against idolatry, and this gives us some insight to the severity of this problem amongst the ancient Jewish people. Furthermore, the 29th Psalm is structured on the grammatical and the poetical level like an ancient Canaanitic poem. And the theology of this poem parallels that of the Canaanites as well in the 29th Psalm. The Canaanites worshipped a god known as Baal-Hadad. Baal-Hadad is also known as the rider of the clouds. Baal-Hadad was said to reveal himself during violent storms. According to the Canaanite legend, Hadad wrestled with the sea god Yam and prevailed in victory, thus ascending the throne. The geographical references in Psalm 29 place the context in the writing of this great psalm in northern Canaan or Israel. What we know is that David borrowed themes and concepts from this Canaanite poem written to commemorate Baal Hadad, and he uses these themes and these concepts to communicate to the people of Israel who their God was. Also, what David is doing is he is using this ancient Canaanite poem as a condemnation against the God of the Canaanites Ba'al-hadad. So in other words, instead of Baal-Hadad in the Canaanite tradition being the rider of the storm, the God of the clouds, the God of the atmosphere, what David does is show that Yahweh Elohim, the God of Israel, is the true and living God and the God of the storm. Let us come to learn that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has all supremacy over every power on earth and in the heavens, and that he is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise because of his creative and atmospheric might. This tremendous psalm is an early apologetical hymn that teaches the people of Israel and the surrounding communities in Canaan that the Lord God of Israel, not Baal Hadad is the one true and living God who alone reveals himself in the storms. As we study this great psalm, let our hearts be drawn out to the real God in adoring fellowship. I have three basic points. Point number one, verses one and two are the call for cosmic praise to the Creator. Roman numeral number one, verses one and two of Psalm 29, the call for cosmic praise to the Creator. Roman numeral number two, the Creator God reveals Himself in the storm. Verses three through nine of Psalm 29, the Creator God reveals Himself in the storm. Roman numeral number two. Roman numeral number three, the communique or the proclamation of the creator God's reign and promise of his blessings in the final verses, verses 10 and 11. That's Roman numeral number 3, the communique, the communication or the proclamation of this creator God's reign and promise of his blessing in verses 10 and 11. Did you notice what David does in verses 1 and 2? Let's read them again. He says, ascribe to the Lord all heavenly beings. O ye heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. At the very beginning of Psalm 29, David calls upon the unseen beings that live in worlds unknown to us interdimensional, transdimensional, celestial, heavenly angels, and whatsoever else dwells in realms that we don't know, David calls upon these beings to offer up glory, honor, majesty, and praise to the God of Israel. Now you have to understand that this would have had a striking effect upon the psyche of the people that the Israelites were at war against. Let's paint this picture. Can you imagine the Jewish army being led by David the king versus the Canaanite army being led by whatever king was ruling in that day? And we have to be reminded of something, that when ancient armies 3,500 years ago would square off with each other on the battlefield, it was this sort of ancient version of, my God can beat up your God. It was really David versus the king of the Canaanites, but even more than that, it was the God of David versus the God of the Canaanites. And what we have is an early version of psychological warfare and propaganda. (laughs) David is literally announcing to the people to whom they are at war with, He's saying, your God, Baal Hadad, you think that he is the rider of the clouds, the rider on the storm, but our God, Yahweh Elohim, he is the one. He is the true and living God. And this is a striking feature of this great psalm. This psalm is a war chant, a psalm of battle, a psalm of war, and a psalm of victory over the powers of darkness that sought to stand against Israel and her God. This first verse has no less than three warnings. By implication, there are three warnings. The first warning is that human beings and heavenly beings are not to use their glory and strength for their own purposes and for their own glory But the heavenly beings that dwell in realms unknown to us and unseen to us, these beings are to be giving honor and glory to the true and living God, the God of Israel. It's very, very normal in our society for people to take the glory that God deserves and misappropriate it for their own selves. Don't ever forget that whatever talents... Whatever abilities that God has given you, God is the one who gave them, and God deserves to be worshipped and praised for what He's given you. We're not to be stealing the glory of God and misappropriating it for our own selves. We are not the masters of our fate. We are not the gods of our own universe. And this psalm testifies to that great reality. Another temptation that would have been very prevalent in ancient Israel and also prevalent in our day, is that people our own strength and our own glory cause us to not glorify God for who God is. One of the striking things about the man Job, I'm doing a study of the book of Job in my own time, and one of the striking things is not that Job feared God and loved God and worshiped God, but the striking thing about the man Job was that he was eminently wealthy and privileged, and he would have been considered a multi millionaire, if not a billionaire, if Job was alive today under our standards. The Bible said that just one of his livestock, he had 7,000 head of cattle and many other thousands of other sheep and domesticated beasts. Job was a very wealthy man, and what made Job so special in the eyes of God is it's very rare. Very rare for wealthy people to love and glorify God. And the reason is because they can depend, they can trust in their wealth and their riches and their lands and their properties and their weapons and their security forces. What do they need God for? And this psalm calls the people and calls these beings that live in the heavenly realm to put aside their glory and honor and strength and ascribe that to God and to God alone. God alone deserves to be bestowed with our worship. God alone deserves to be bestowed with our praise. Be very careful with taking glory and honor that belongs to God alone And using it for your own self. It's probably one of the greatest dangers of being a preacher. And especially if you're a preacher who knows how to actually say something about the Bible from time to time. People begin to think that you are special in and of your own self. And it's always important for us to be redirecting that praise and that glory to God and to God alone. That's what this psalm calls upon us to do. Therefore, because the glory of the Lord is so great, because the Creator God is so wonderful, we must renounce all of our self-reliance and all the things in which we have placed our trust, our security, or our identity, and we must count those things as rubbish and dung before God. The very fact that our text this morning says ascribe to the Lord glory and honor means that he alone is worthy of that praise. Why would David call upon these beings in the heavenly world to praise God? Well, one of the reasons is because these beings, no matter how powerful or gifted they are, they are still inferior to the God of Israel. The God of Israel is the one and only God who dwells in the heavenly realm who says and who can make the claim that He has no beginning and that He has no ending. These beings are, in fact, metaphysically different and inferior from God. God is the only one who can make the claim in Psalm 33 and verse 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. Roman numeral number 2, the Creator God reveals Himself in the storm, verses 3 through 9, let's look at them. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. Uh, This verse calls to remembrance That Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one and true God and the basis for God's supremacy above and beyond all other gods is that He created all things, ex nihilio, that means out of nothing. Our God is the only being that can make the claim that in the beginning He spoke the worlds into existence. Did you notice in this psalm? the emphasis on the voice of the Lord. It's the power of the Word of God that's being described in this great psalm. The waters symbolize Genesis chapter 1 and these tumultuous, primordial, primeval forces and elements that threaten to overwhelm our regular order of life. Think of it in this way. When... The dam burst or the levee breaks and the floodwaters begin to flow. Nothing that stands on the other side of the levee that's in the path of those waters, nothing can stand. I remember in the year 1993, I was just a little boy and there was a great flood on the Mississippi River. And we lived about three miles from the Mississippi And sometimes the levees uh, going down the length of that great river are 30 and 40 foot tall and almost that wide. And these levees, because the Mississippi was so high and it was so powerful, these, uh, these levees were giving way. And if you've ever seen from the flood of 93 where the levee broke and there's this big giant beautiful farmhouse that swept up off of its foundation and carried down. That uh, happened in Prairie Rocher, Illinois. That was just uh, about 20 minutes from where I grew up. And this is what David says that the voice of God is like. It's like mighty flood waters. These violent waters stand as a metaphor for the many tumults of life that seek to disrupt our faith in God. The mighty floodwaters of political strife in our day that seek to disrupt our faith in God. The mighty floodwaters of personal crisis, illness, death, loss, financial hardship, All of these things are metaphors for the great problems that we face in our faith and our walk with God. And last but not least, directly from the context of Psalm 29, these floodwaters represent spiritual warfare and the attacks of our great enemy. In the legend of Baal Hadad and other ancient mythologies, the gods had to wrestle with great difficulty in order to usurp their authority over these primordial elements. So in the Canaanite tradition, they believed that there was a god of the sea and a god of the storm, and these two gods sort of gotten the octagon and had it out, and uh, Baal-Hadad was the one that ultimately rose to victory. The striking feature of the 29th Psalm is this. It says that our God didn't have to do anything like that. And the reason is because in the beginning, He is the one who spoke all things into existence. He is the Creator God. I'll give it to you like this. Like an authoritative teacher who enters a disruptive classroom, God spoke And the forces that were once so brave and outspoken, they hushed themselves. And it's because God is the householder, the homeowner. God has the rights, the deeds. God has the ownership of our world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the one and true God. He is the God, the creator God. He has to wrestle with no one. He, in and of Himself, has all authority. I want to show you that the voice of the Lord is said to be like two specific things in verse 3 and verse 7 of Psalm 29. He said, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Look at verse number 7. He said, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. and This is fascinating. This is what the psalmist is trying to tell us that God and God's voice is like a mighty F5 tornado and nothing that stands in the path of God can stand God is God himself is viewed as a torrential hurricane as a mighty tsunami a force that no one, nothing can stand against. In this psalm he said that God's voice is like thunder. It's like forks of lightning. They tell us that these great wildfires uh, that my mother and father-in-law are going to be flying from out in Oregon state and they't they may not be able to fly tomorrow because there's so much smoke. And there's so much, the air quality is so poor, the pilots can't see because of the wildfires. And they think that it was a bolt of lightning which struck a dead tree somewhere way out in the California, Oregon wilderness that ignited this great brush fire and now thousands and thousands of acres are inflamed. And that's what God is like. God is like lightning. God is like thunder. And what's so fascinating about this, and this is still touching my heart at this time as I'm thinking about this. God's voice being like thunder and like lightning is connected to His creative event in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The psalmist is telling us that every time you experience a violent thunderstorm... There's lightning, there's crashing thunder. The the animals, the birds are fleeing. I I always, you know, whenever I was a little boy uh, growing up, I can remember there'd be very violent lightning storms and thunderstorms where I grew up at. And the animals would just absolutely be freaking out. They'd run the other way, they'd try to hide, and that's what this psalm is talking about. God is frightening, ladies and gentlemen. God is a God of the storm. And every time we see the storm, the hurricane, the tornado, we need to be reminded that that same power, that same authority, that same majesty that we are all stricken with, nothing scarier than a horrifying storm, that's what God's creative act was like in the beginning. Moreover, the same fear that we feel in the midst of a mighty thunderstorm is the same fear that these angelics be- that these angelic beings experienced when they witnessed the Lord God create all things out of nothing. More of that in a moment. God's creative power in Psalm 29 is still echoing all throughout our world today every time you witness a mighty storm. I want to show you how all of creation reacts to the voice of God. The animals are frightened by the voice of the Lord. Look at Psalm 29 and verse 6. He makes the He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young ox. You ever been standing out in the middle of a farm field whenever a lightning bolt strikes close to that livestock? They just stand there, don't they? No? They take off running, don't they? And that's what the voice of God is like in Psalm 29. It's mighty, it's frightening, it's horrifying. It really is. The inanimate objects, trees are uprooted. Mighty oak trees, the cedars of Lebanon. They're stripped of their foliage. Look at verses 5, 8, and 9. This is so powerful. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. If you, uh, you know, you remember the great explosion that happened in Beirut that took place in the country of Lebanon, a very ancient country. And if you look at the Lebanese flag today, you know what it has on it? It has a, it has a cedar tree because that country is known for its mighty cedars. 30, 40, 50, 60 foot tall, giant cedars, big around, as a, hood of a car. These are mighty trees in ancient Palestine. These were trees in which if you were going to build a palace or you're going to build a great uh, temple, they would harvest, they would go up to the northern part and they'd harvest the cedars of Lebanon and use them for building material. And in verse 5 it said the Lord breaks these mighty cedars, the cedars of Lebanon. In verse number eight he said, The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Verse number nine he said, The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. It scares the deers the fawns out of the birth canal. This is a very powerful image. Still today, if we have a mighty storm, our little doggies, they cower in fear, whimper, shake. I have to go in there and comfort them. And this is what God is like. I like verse 8, he said, the voice of the Lord shakes the deserts, the wilderness of Kadesh. I want you to think of the most out of the way place, Antarctica, the Sahara Desert, the Mojave Desert, the mountains of uh, Colorado. And the Bible says that God is just as sovereign, that He's just as much Lord, that He's just as powerful out in no man's land as He is right here, right now. There's not a place on the earth where God is not in charge, where God is not exercising His sovereignty. Our final point. I have it written here as interdimensional praise. Interdimensional praise. The movement of this psalm is from the furthest nether reaches of realms unknown, realms unseen, the nether reaches of the cosmos, then the psalm moves to earth, then back to the cosmos, and then into the temple of our God. Now, I still haven't been able to get over this last portion, and y'all pray for me. I want you to notice verses 10 and 11. Starting in verse 9, in the English Standard Version that I'm using, the latter part of the verse, it said, and in his temple all cry glory! Exclamation point. Verses 10 and 11, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood, The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Do you remember when we read in verses 1 and 2, the Bible said, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. David calls upon these heavenly beings to offer up glory and praise to the true God of Israel. And in these last two verses, that's exactly what these beings are doing. Now I want to stop and consider this for a moment. The the pagan god, Baal Hadad... Was viewed to have been the enemy of the Jewish people and the enemy of the God of Israel. What is so polemical and profound and powerful about this psalm is that David makes the claim that all of the gods, when they witnessed Yahweh's creative power in the beginning, where He spoke the worlds into existence and He subdued the darkness and He spoke into existence all the laws of physics and all the elements and all that we know, the laws of gravity, etc., etc., etc. The Bible says, David makes the claim that when these beings saw the power and the majesty and the splendor and the creative glory of God, that they fell on their faces and they worshipped him even the gods that were at each other's throat and the enemy gods of the true and living God, the Bible says that they fell to their knees and they proclaimed that God was their true king and that his throne would last forever. Somebody says, Was Satan there? Yes. This text... And other texts like this one suggest that sometime in eternity past, there was a great conflict amongst these heavenly beings somewhere. And God, in order to show His authority and His power, He displayed His sovereignty and His supremacy above all the other gods of the cosmos by creating our world. When God created our physical universe, all of these beings, they bowed down and they worshipped Him for who He was. At that moment, God usurped His authority and He ascended the throne as the omnipotent Creator King. And all the powers gave Him the honor and the glory which He deserved. What else do these divine beings, these heavenly beings say? Look at verse 11. They say, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Can you imagine the enemies of Israel now proclaiming that God would bless his people? And the reason why the enemies of Israel proclaim God would bless His people is because God has displayed His mighty power. To the angels that live in realms unknown, God displayed His mighty power at the creation in Genesis 1 and 2. To us who live in this earthly realm, God displays His power, His majesty, and His authority through mighty and violent, ferocious storms. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. (laughs) I have no less than five takeaways, maybe six, from our study of Psalm 29. In your life, be careful to offer up God-centered praise. God-centered praise. Eighteen times in eleven verses, the Lord's name appears. David asks God for nothing. David makes no request of God. David simply praises God because God is God. David praises God. He doesn't want anything out of God. David praises God because he loves God and because God is worthy in and of God's own self to receive honor, glory, majesty, and praise from His created beings. Think about this. When was the last time that you set aside a time to praise God, not even because He's done anything for you, not because you're trying to get something out of Him, but simply because God is worthy to be known and glorified in your life, moment by moment, day by day, whether He gives you anything or not. This psalm calls upon us... To worship God, not because of what He does, but because of who He is. And this is pure praise. You'll find no complaints from David, no mornings, only pure praise. The implication of Psalm 29 is this if God's power is so great that mighty, celestial, heavenly beings that live in worlds unknown and unseen to us, if they are bowing down and praising God, then why don't we? Thirdly, what is so striking and paradoxical about the God of Israel is that in the very last verse, God is displaying all this power, all this might, not because He is coming to make war, although He'll do that too, but in the last verse of Psalm 29, the mighty power, authority, sovereignty, the creative glory of God is being displayed so that the people of God would have peace. Look at verse 11, may the Lord bless his people with peace. This is how it works. If God is sovereign in the mighty tornadoes and hurricanes and thunderstorms of our lives, if those things testify of who he is, if the angels of God bow down, by the way, angels both evil and good are bowing down and worshiping him for who he is, then that God is able to give me peace in the circumstances of my life. This God who spoke all things ex nihilio, out of nothing, that same God is able to grant peace, shalom in Hebrew, to His people. Peace in the midst of the storms of life. Peace in the midst of attacks from our spiritual enemies. Peace in the atmospheric tumults, the next time you feel like Satan is bothering you and pestering you and accusing you, causing you to have all sorts of doubt and darkness, depression and condemnation, just remember that there was a point in time where he bowed before the throne of God and confessed that God was worthy of honor, majesty and praise. (laughs) Isn't this wonderful? Amen. Peace in the midst of atmospheric tumult. Another teaching or takeaway from this great psalm is that no one, no thing in heaven or on earth is able to outclass our God. Nobody, You know, if you've ever studied um, combat fighting, you know, there's a new champion almost every year, isn't there? This, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, was George Foreman and Lennox Lewis and now it's whoever else it is. And the great champions of the earth, they rise and they fall. But our God never falls. He's always been the one and only reigning undisputed champion of world seen and unseen. And finally, there's an unsettling truth here. Did you catch it? Here is the metaphor. God is like a storm. What's the problem with a storm? A storm is destructive. A storm is frightening. And what happens is we begin to have these unbiblical views of God. God is not just a God of love. He is a God of love, but He's also the God of the storm. He is destructive. He uproots mighty trees. He strips them of their foliage. He lays them bare. He breaks them in half. The created order runs and flees from Him. Our God is terrible sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. His wrath and His justice and His judgment, His hatred for sin, is like a mighty, uncontrollable storm. It's an unsettling truth. It's that God can be destructive and ferocious. And this challenges our conceptions of who God is. And it challenges us to reconsider Him on His own terms. May we, like David and the angels which dwell in realms unseen... May we offer up pure praise to God. Worshipping and praising God, not because of what we can get out of Him, but worshiping and praising God because God is God and He is worthy of our love and He's worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Our Father... We thank you that you are the God of the storm. No one else, nothing else controls the storm. But Lord, let us hear your voice in the midst of the storm. Our Father, we ask and pray for your people to not settle and to not be complacent in their walk and in their understanding of you but that they would strive for knowledge and for a relationship, for fellowship with you, that they would seek you with their lives, with their hearts. And Father, we ask and pray that even as unsettling as the metaphor of the storm may be, that we would accept you for who you say you are, and we would not try to change you into what we want you to be. We ask all these things in faith, And in Jesus' name, amen.